This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. Today's episode is a recording from a live interview conducted as part of the Printer's Row Lit Fest in Chicago. It's a free festival every September. My guest is Antoine Wilson, author of the novel Mouth to Mouth. I tend to try to write for a reader who is me, you know, some version of myself. Um, I try to write books that I would like to read. In fact, the first novel that I wrote after graduate school uh, took me about three years to write. And at the end, after I deployed everything I'd learned, basically, and, you know, there's some nice things about it. I'd written a book I didn't want to read. We'll be back with Antoine Wilson after these essential words. Okay, here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they ask, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast. I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this, just an I which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world, we have to support what we love and there is an energy there that comes back to us. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and become a supporter of First Draft today. It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And on to the show. My guest today is Antoine Wilson, author of the novels The Interloper, Panama City, and Mouth to Mouth, which was featured on Barack Obama's 2022 summer reading list. His writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Quarterly West, and Best New American Voices, among other publications. 
He is a contributing editor at a public space. This interview on Wilson's novel Mouth to Mouth was recorded during a live session at the Printer's Row Lit Fest in downtown Chicago. The free literary festival takes place every year in September in the Printer's Row neighborhood and features author interviews, panel discussions, readings, speakers, and a street fair, among other festivities. You can learn more about the festival at printersrowlitfest.org. The 2024 festival is scheduled for September 7th and 8th. So thanks again for being here. So I, I thought maybe we could start. I'm hoping that everybody has read this book. But if you haven't, um, I can do a summary and you can tell me if I'm wrong. I love that. (laughs) Okay. I would say the basic premise is that there are two men that take a red eye from L.A. and they land in JFK. And the narrator is unnamed. And he recognizes this man from his flight named Jeff Cook that he knew back in UCLA. But this is maybe 20 years later. And Jeff Cook invites him to go to the nice like club lounge that he has because he's quite wealthy from L.A., and he tells him a story. And so the whole book is really this recounting of the story of something that happened to him, and what happened to him is that Jeff saved someone from drowning at the ocean and then sort of just kind of inserted himself into his life, was very obsessed with the fact that he saved him, but also trying to get close to him maybe for credit, but then just kind of was an interloper in his life, sort of like a stalker, and worked for him. He was an art dealer in L.A. And one of the major questions I think that Jeff was asking himself and maybe wanting some affirmation for was, is he a good person? Right, yeah. Yeah, so how was that? That's very good. I would say the only uh, minor correction is that Jeff is actually flying straight out of JFK. He he didn't come on there. Jeff would never take a red eye. (laughs) Unlike you. Un- unlike me. I just, yeah, I arrived this morning at 7 on my, yeah, monster four-hour flight from Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, you know, at the center of this is, I think that in some ways Jeff was asking for um, validation that he was a good person. So what, what do you think makes a good person? Wow. I, I don't know if I have an answer to that. I, I mean, I think I, I can talk about... Um, the fact that we all like to think of ourselves as good people, for the most part. I mean, I, I think that there are some of us who have done things where, you know, we can definitely say, well, that was a bad thing that I did. But for the most part, we like to think about how we have arrived where we are today and look back at the steps that we took. And we kind of maybe elide some of the bad parts or some of us don't necessarily like to consider craven ambition or having... T- stepped over somebody else or you know the little dark things that we might have in our past and and Jeff's story is definitely a story that feels like it's had something erased from it um, he really wants to see himself as, as having risen um, from circumstance and and his own merit um, there's no acknowledgement really of his privilege if we you know to, to bring it into like a contemporary discourse he, he he has no sense that he's come kind of come up this glass escalator um, and the, but the way he tells his story uh, yeah he's, he's trying to show himself in the in the best light and some of the stuff he does the, the narrator says you know it, it, in another in a mirror world you you could consider it stalking basically because he, he pulls this guy out of the water saves his life and then the, the, the uh, paramedics come they take the guy away the lifeguard goes away and um, Jeff is just left on the beach by himself, right, with a woolen blanket. And this incredibly powerful, traumatic experience of having saved somebody randomly and not feeling like he had any choice whatsoever. So he does not know how to process this. And one of the things sort of under the auspices of like, hmm, did the guy turn out okay? Uh, I better look into it, you know. And then, hmm, who, who was it that I saved? What, what impact have I made? Um, he, he essentially, though, is, as you said, maybe seeking his reward, um, even though he denies that part the entire way through. Um, there's some kind of like cosmic equation that he cannot uh, talk his way out of. When you save somebody's life, that's a, a strong bond, no, no matter what. I mean, I think we, we institutionalize it if it's in a medical setting or something, but if it's you know, out there on the street, you're connected for life, I think. One thing you say in the very beginning, I mean, I think it's on page two, was you're describing these men and 
you say that they're something like they, because they had gained a little weight since they were in college, and you say, um, continuing to grow into manhood long after we thought we'd arrived. So you have these, I know what it feels like to be in college and think you've totally arrived, and then you have the rest of your life to beat you down to realize that you haven't arrived at all. So I was curious about this idea, not necessarily of manhood, although that's part of it, but of adulthood. And was there, like, it seems like maybe saving some life would transition you into an adulthood you never knew, but I'm, I'm always very fascinated by what defines this passage into adulthood, and do we ever get there? And I'm curious if you think about that. Yeah, and... For Jeff, when he does save Francis on the beach, he's he's on the beach early morning because he's gotten through this terrible breakup with this uh, college girlfriend, and this is after college, but he thought maybe they'd have a life together, right? So he's on the cusp of a certain kind of adulthood. But, you know, looking back, it's some, something many of us would look back at a college relationship like that and say, oh, yeah, puppy love, that, you know, we weren't, that wasn't real um, quite yet. And anyone who's taught, college students you know you walk into those classrooms sometimes and you're shocked you're like these are children but yet when I was that age I thought I was an adult and one aspect one of the reasons that I set this book in that in that first class lounge um, and and sort of put the storytelling um, in at the center of them them having a conversation about Jeff's life is I love high school reunions and these guys knew each other in college, but there's nothing quite like every 10 years getting a sort of time-lapse view of everybody's life, and um, especially the people you haven't kept in touch with. And there's a socioeconomic aspect to this for Jeff and the narrator. The narrator is a sort of schlubby, not quite successful author, hoping to cash in on a, on a German magazine, calling him a, a cult writer. That's why he's headed to Berlin. And, you know, Jeff is incredibly wealthy. Um, I, I just find that that's an interesting uh, sort of contrast to, to look at where we end up and what we, what we choose to do with our lives. As for actual adulthood, I have no idea. I mean, it, it, my, it, my personal aspect of it has to do with raising children, you know, because that's uh, plenty of people who, uh, who don't have children are adults, I will admit. But... Um, <laughs> But when you when you raise when you raise children, all of a sudden, um, it, it you know first of all you have no uh, more control over your own time, or or it becomes much more difficult to control. And then you you're very responsible for somebody else's life, and everything becomes quite real. For me, one of the things I think about with adulthood that was maybe um, a revelation for me is like being able to live with ambiguity that I think as a child, it, it needs to be more clear. And that was just a realization I had for my personal life. Everybody has to come up with their own. But I'm also curious because that idea, maybe as a cousin of ambiguity, is because Jeff saved this person's life, there was another big question, which is, if you have had your life saved, there's two paths you can go down. You could be dead or you could have this potentially second chance. And do we have a moral obligation to live better if we have nearly died? And this is a question in the book and something that I don't know if Jeff is aware of. Well, Jeff is questioning that. I don't know if Francis, the man he saved, is aware of that. But there's nothing to make you think about how you live than when you see the white tunnel, maybe. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about that question for you. Yeah, well, the, that, the crux of that one is moral obligation, right? It depends what your moral framework is. And for Francis, um, I think he does recognize that he faced death um, and, and beat death, at least for a while. And um, for him, his response is, take as big a bite of the apple as you can, right? Um, which is a sort of midlife crisis style response when you recognize your own mortality and you decide, oh, wait, screw it. I'm going to die. I'm going to do whatever the F I want. Um, it's a very short-sighted thing because it doesn't tend to bode well for the relationships in your life, and those tend to be a source of happiness for most non-sociopaths. <laughs> but um, ambigu- ambiguity uh, is an interesting subject in terms of craft. 
uh, I think living with ambiguity in my own writing has been something that I've definitely pro progressed with and moved forward in. My earliest stories um, tended to hit the reader over the head with exactly what everything meant. So, you know, you give a detail and then you say, well, and that's how you know that he was rich or, you know, whatever, not like that. But, but, um, and, and I've been trying to move more and more toward um, uh, a kind of ambiguity, an openness in um, storytelling that allows uh, the reader to come to it with their own interpretation, leaves a lot more room for the reader uh, without being unsatisfying, right? Because you don't want to just be so wide open that, that the reader isn't feeling like there's something at stake or feeling uh, connected to it. Do you think that is more important at the story ending or to weave throughout or both or neither? Um, in this particular story, uh, it has a definitive ending that invites uh, a lot of different interpretations. And I think the center uh, of those interpretations is who is Jeff, right? Is he a sociopath? Is he a doofus who has sort of been corrupted? Um, or is he something in between? And I, and I think that's the part that I was most excited about leaving open. And in writing it, um, initially, the whole Jeff story was first person straight to the reader, and it never worked for me. I couldn't make it work, and I kept uh, actually abandoning the book for a different book, which then I would abandon for this book. Um, and the other one didn't wor ever work. Um, I was liberated from it this summer in a most magical moment that I can share with you <laughs> if you'd like. But um, for this one, it, it, when I, once I figured out that Jeff was telling the story to the narrator, that's what made it click. And it, it's because it created a sort of space in which we could, um, uh, I, at least I, as the author, could say, actually, I don't know. I don't know wh where Jeff stands on this. I'm in the place of this, of this interlocutor, this, this narrator. So I actually don't have the answers to your questions. I have my own ideas about what happened. But um, I, I, I liked doing that and um, in a way that uh, hopefully you know, readers don't find infuriating. Well, tell us about the magic moment. Well, so the other book was this uh, sort of pseudo memoir. I, I mean, it was, it was all fiction, but it, I, I'm from Montreal originally. And um, I left when I was seven years old. And so this book took place in Montreal in childhood. And there's this island, which is a real place. And all these sort of childhood things happen. And then in the middle of the book, it's a middle-aged, the middle-aged guy going back to these places. And it kind of had this, like, Patrick Modiano, you know, weird nostalgia charge. There's something dark underneath all of this. And... Um, Sure, that was great, and it was very intriguing for the first half, but then I didn't know what it was, right? I, I did, I'm like, what is the darkness? So I tried to, like, you know, I got sucked like Perul Sagal would have just nailed me up on the cross, so to speak, uh, of being sucked in by the trauma plot, right? I'm like, oh, it must be a dark trauma. And it never worked because it didn't fit. This summer, my eldest half-brother got remarried in Ottawa, very exciting town. Anyway, we went to Montreal, and we went back to my childhood home, and I had never been, I hadn't been inside it since 1978, but the woman who bought it from my parents still lives there. It looks exactly the same. And then we went to this island that I, that I mentioned also. So I walked in the footsteps of this narrator that I had imagined, of this book that didn't work, and I thought, maybe if I go back there and walk in the footsteps, something will click, and I'll be like, oh, that's what this book is about. And halfway walking around the island, it's lush, it's green, it's summer in Montreal. The thunder is rumbling far away. And I just got it. You don't have to write this book. <laughs> this, I, I just was like, all, all of the things you wrote, they're here. They're literal. They're happening. This place exists. There's nothing. There's nothing behind it. Like, the only thing that was behind like, the energy, the mysterious energy that was driving me to write this was that I couldn't remember my childhood very well. <laughs> It's not, it's not much of a story. And, and, but it's weird. I mean, it like hit me, you know, like, like an actual boom, like a realization. And I was walking with my family and I just like, just sort of shut, you know, I was not going to tell them about it. I was like, wow, I can't believe it. And it was like, you may now look outward again. You don't have to be in your own shit and 
you know, and you can look outward again and move on and write something else. So still waiting on what that is, but <laughs> that's my story of liberation. Well, that's what's so interesting, I think, about being a writer is like no one, I mean, maybe you have a five book deal and you, you owe a book, but it's not like the masses are saying, okay, where's your book? Like, it's not like you have to produce a widget every year and someone's waiting for you. It's really self-determination. Yes, nobody is asking for my next book. <laughs> so you, you mentioned, oh, she is. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You mentioned a critic, and um, one of the things, that the New York Times book critic, um, one of the things that you look at in the book is art because Francis, the guy who, whose life Jeff saved, is an art dealer and he's kind of a mover and shaker and manipulative with his artists, I think, and definitely out for money. And his wife was an artist, I think probably a beautiful artist, but I haven't really seen her work. Um, but there's some questions in there about if a critic, if your, if your art isn't reviewed, if your art isn't bought, that in some way, like maybe it, it doesn't matter. And that, um, you know, the, the market, you write, the market isn't the only indicator of artistic quality. It wasn't only that this show didn't sell, it wasn't reviewed, it had zero impact. And I was like a knife through the heart when you said that because yeah. it sort of makes like maybe our like life's work if we're whatever kind of artist we are, whether we are a gardener or a writer, that it, what is the relationship between impact and the creative work that we do? And I'm curious about that question for you. Ah, for me. Well, because I, I was going to say thought experiment. Picasso makes all of his work, but it gets destroyed and nobody ever sees it, right? It's, <laughs> is it art? It, you know, or does art happen between the, the, the work of art and the viewer or the person who experiences it? Um, novels happen between readers' ears, you know, they, they, they exist on the page, but if nobody's reading them, then, then they're not literature. Um, so within the, you know, within the world of the book, we're dealing with the contemporary art world, and there are definitely um, artists who have been elevated whose work one might call thin, um, and then other artists who are making uh, much deeper, more interesting work who have not been um, elevated to the same heights. And in... And, the contemporary art world, I think there's a lot, you know, there's a critical writing from art historians and critics, and then there's just the market. And because this book is based in the world of galleries and auctions and things, the market is, um, sort of has the final say, especially for, for someone like Francis. Um, I recently read a profile of an art dealer in The New Yorker by Patrick Radden Keefe, um, and I was pleased to read it and along the way come across a few echoes of Francis. And I, was, I thought, oh, okay, these, these guys have something in common. Well, so what about, I want to dig deeper about like when you write mm, okay. and the impact, like do you want your writing to have an impact and what does that mean? Hmm. I think it, I tend to try to write for a reader who is me, you know, some version of myself. Um, I try to write books that I would like to read. In fact, the first novel that I wrote after graduate school uh, took me about three years to write. And at the end, after I deployed everything I'd learned, basically, and, you know, there's some nice things about it. I, I'd written a book I didn't want to read, which was really a strange um, experience. And so impact-wise... I don't know if I think about impact as much as probably as um, wanting to enchant, I think. Wanting to enchant the reader and, and get them into the fictional world. And hopefully, um, you know, every, every subsequent page is more interesting than the previous one, you know. I, I, I do think about the reader, but I guess it's in kind of a vague way. Is your experience of writing 
I mean, there's like your logical mind when you're writing, and then there's some creative element that for some people, they say they, it feels channels, channeled. I'm curious about your experience for you, and if you feel enchantment when you're creating. I wish I felt it more. Um, there, there, You know, there's, uh, I think it's a Virginia Woolf anecdote, you know, where she says she spent all day getting people from like the dining room into the living room. Um, it, it's interesting because it is such a uh, humble uh, craft in terms of something I like to do sometimes when I'm feeling like, um, you know, all of this other work on my bookshelves, other people's books are, are these great castles in the sky. I'll pick one up off the bookshelf and just open it to the middle. And, and I go, oh, right. It's made of sentences. It's made of, like, unless it's like, you know, Thomas Pynchon or Nabokov or something, it's mainly made of sentences that I could have written, you know? And it's, it's, it's a humble art. Uh, and so there's that aspect of it. And then there's, yeah, the enchantment. It's, it is so fun to make discoveries and to uncover something as it happens and to surprise yourself. Um, that may be... Uh, alongside sort of, uh, you know, wanting to offload all this accumulated subjectivity going on uh, in my head, uh, those, those little discoveries are the sort of built-in reward um, in one side. And then on the sort of craftier, more Apollonian, less Dionysian side is revision. Um, I love when I'm, you know, three quarters of the way through the process of writing a book because I finally understand the book. I spend a lot of time in this deep, contingent, uncertainty place that's not comfortable. Um, but whatever, that's what, <laughs> that's, that's what you have to do, I think. And so when, you get to the, when I get to the point where I feel like I know the book and I know what needs to happen and I know, um, like I have some sort of sense of mastery over what I'm trying to do, that's really fun. And I love revision. I love trying to make everything as neat and clean and tight and doing what I wanted to do as much as I can. And then uh, afterward, it's like painting a, you know, a floor. Uh, you got to paint the floor so that when you do the last strokes, you go right out the door, not in the corner of the room. And, um, and I like to like leave no, leave no prints behind. So um, my, the, my books tend to be a lot sort of um, tighter and neater than, than the, you, would, you wouldn't imagine that the process was as chaotic as it is. I'll put it that way. You mentioned that books are made up of sentences. And every sentence, I think, can be like a whole universe in itself that can stop you in your tracks. And I was actually thinking about that this morning when I was taking notes. You have a sentence in there that says, the part of our brain tasked with generating reason doesn't care about truth, only plausibility. And this was a sentence that stopped me, and I thought about it for a while. I thought about it also because this is really also about storytelling and someone telling someone else a story and what is maybe the difference between truth and plausibility and how important is that both in storytelling and in life. So wanted to ask you, do you remember writing this sentence and if you could unpack it a little more? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I like that sentence. I, I remember writing it because it does sort of, in a compressed way, sum up a lot of different ideas that have been rocking around in my head. Um, there's something special about a first-person narrator, uh, especially in the confessional mode, as opposed to like a diary narrator. And that first-person narrator in the confessional mode who's talking to somebody, trying to justify themselves or tell their story, it, it, it comes from a part of the brain called the left brain interpreter. This was discovered in the maybe 1970s by a guy named uh, Michael Gazaniga. I can't remember his first name off. I think it's Michael. Anyway, they did these experiments on people who had their corpus callosums cut because um, to prevent epileptic seizures from crossing from one hemisphere to the other. And they, these people seemed fine and nothing was... Uh, they didn't lose any function or anything like that. But then they started doing these experiments where they would deliver information to just one half of the brain. And so they would show the um, right half of the brain a, uh, a, a message, get, please stand up. And the person would 
read that and stand up. And then they'd say, why did you stand up? And the person would say, I want to go get a Coke. And, and they did all these experiments. And it was in the left brain, there's this sort of language-making center that comes up with exactly what we're talking about, something that doesn't care about truth but only cares about plausibility. And that's where we create reasons for the things that we do. And sometimes we're on the mark and sometimes we're off. And I think, you know, you can look at it on the micro scale, but on the macro scale, those, those life stories that we tell about how we got where we are and, and we, we try to justify ourselves. And I've also got a nine-year-old daughter, so it's fascinating to watch her uh, left brain interpreter. It's not quite up to snuff. <laughs> Do you think that beauty lies in plausibility or truth? Or is that an unfair question? Beauty in plausibility or truth. Can, can you expand on? Yeah, I was just thinking about, like, plausibility seems like some kind of manipulation of the truth sometimes. That we um, have to maybe justify something with something that's plausible rather than where it's true. But I, I'm curious if you can find beauty, whether it's in a story or an explanation that's plausible, or if it's void of something, because the truth maybe has more purity to it. Ah, yes. Well, as long as we're like acknowledging that there's no absolute truth, uh, the lowercase truth, um, yeah, definitely can be incredibly beautiful, right? You can come, come to you as a, as a revelation or just even uh, the symmetry of of things can be amazing. Plausibility is a little squishier. Um, it's a little bit more pragmatic. So um, I, I don't think that excludes it from potential, you know, potential for beauty, but it definitely, uh, I guess, raises the bar for it. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it in the way that Francis was telling, like Francis lived in the way that Jeff was retelling that story, that there was some plausibility in there, but maybe not as much truth. And does that make his life not worthless, but it's interesting because Jeff is really questioning the value of Francis's life, that he got this second chance. But I don't know how much he questions his life. I mean, he's concerned with being a good person, but even if we don't die and come back to life, we still have hopefully some awareness of the ephemerality and beauty of the life we live and the, uh, that it is still our only shot. But I don't know if Jeff fully got that. Right. It depends on how reflective you are, right? If you're, if you're a writer person, you're thinking about these things. If you're a um, dogged capitalist, maybe you have, uh, <laughs> you have a few dark thoughts in the night, but for the most part, you're chasing, um, chasing the carrot or the... Uh, rabbit, as it were. So I think for Jeff, there's something nagging at him. You know, he's got everything he could ever want. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he's got a dark secret at the bottom of it. Uh, it's not even, that depends how dark it is. But the initial, like, let's say, life-saving uh, is not that dark a secret other than the weird way in which he's taken advantage of it. So he's got everything he could ever want. And yet, he's one of those people that you know, he bumps into somebody he knew long ago, and he's like, mm, there's something nagging at him. Something that's uh, is a fly in the ointment. You were, you were mentioning earlier about your kind of drafting process and the, these essential questions about if you get a second chance, like, what do you do with it, and are you a good person? So how do you, when you go into writing a book and you have these intellectual questions, how do you put that into craft if you can even put that into words because you, you're not writing something didactic. That's not what you want to do as a novelist. Right. So for me at least and for others that I've talked to, uh, for a lot of us, it, the themes, the intellectual questions and all of that are emergent properties of the sentence by sentence following your nose, following the trail. Okay, this guy saves this other guy's life, and the other guy is questionable. What, is, what happens next? What is he thinking? What is he feeling? What does it look like? Very basic stuff, you know? And does it make sense? Is it clear? Um, 
And then obviously there are like, you, you return to rewrite things to make them clearer and, and um, more vivid. And along the way, the ideas pop up. And so there's a sort of action and reflection rhythm that happens. I mean, we see action and reflection rhythm in, in a lot of fiction, like in the fiction, right? Like scene and then you know, everybody talking about it or thinking about it. But in the process, it's true too, where um, it feels very, very sort of close to the grindstone um, as you're writing it. And then you're like, oh, this just opened up this whole possibility. And you can take a step back and, th and think about it. So it's just such a long process that I think as long as you stay alive in, in multiple modes um, and stay sort of awake to possibilities, those things come arise. And then the funny thing is then when, when you've finally like written the whole book and finished it and other people start reading it, that's when you realize, oh, there's a bunch of stuff in here that I hadn't consciously considered, or maybe I had, but forgot. Um, but then it's like, oh yeah, no, this, these are my concerns. I had no idea these are my concerns because usually what am I thinking about? Getting the kids to school or what the hell's happening in the scene? Um, so to me, it's all, like, it's all about the emergent properties and trusting that these things will come up. I think what's so interesting too about reading a book is that you are bringing your whole biography to the book when, when you read it, when you read it, when I read it, when you read it, so that, and, and you kind of have a nod to that actually. In, in your book, you have uh, two characters, Jeff, when he's younger, um, he meets the daughter of the man he saves and they start dating. And Jeff is house-sitting a house and he has Chloe, his new girlfriend, come over for the first time. And they're walking through the house, and you say it was impossible for them to see the same house. So it's something about perspective that he, he was house-sitting for an actor who was house-sitting for an actor, which was Brad Pitt's house. And so she was going through the house marveling at everything she was seeing, and it was this famous guy. But Jeff's recollection was of some heartbreak with the last girlfriend that he lived there with. And so that that our biology, psychology, spirituality comes into reading a book. And so it's interesting what you're talking about because I don't know if you've had experiences with, with readers where they're seeing different things, but I kind of love that books are living objects, even though they don't seem like that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, reading is an act of co-creation, right? There's the text, and then there's what you bring to it. And I've had, yeah, I've had a, a different interpretations of who Jeff is, but the most interesting experience I've had with reader experiences of this book is a number of people, let's call them 3%, 5% of readers, think that the narrator is a woman. And I say, what do you mean she's a woman? She goes and uses the urinal halfway through the story. <laughs> and then I flipped, this is what I said, like the first time somebody said it, and I flipped through it, I'm like, there's no urinal. Just goes to the bathroom. It's just a generic bathroom, and and I, one of them told me that it's because of the thing about like there's a line about leading the lives that people believe that writers live every day, uh, a break from carpool and groceries, which are apparently a gendered thing for some people, um, not in my life. But uh, so then you know then there's somebody else reading a completely different book. I mean, think about the sexual tension going on in that first class lounge, and also the way the narrator describes Jeff as as being handsome in, in certain ways. You could see as a sort of sexual gaze, which may, might lead someone to believe the narrator's female. But you know, there it is, and I I I love that stuff. I'm open to people bringing whatever they want to to the page and uh, to the reading experience. Because we're all walking around in our own little globes, you know, and then we, our own pictures of the world, which, by the way, run a half second behind real time. I don't know if you guys knew this. Half second behind real time. We have reflexes that keep us from getting hit by balls and things like that. But this picture of the world that you're experiencing right now actually happened a half second ago. Um, I know, it's, it's weird. It's weird. It's like windows, you know, but for the brain. Any, in any case, some, you know, we do what we can with language and looks and other uh, ways of communicating to cause those little spheres to overlap um, when we can. And I'm always fascinated with the ways in which characters don't see each other for who they are. 
there's always these approximations, you know, and, and obviously if you've got some sort of pathological psychology, the approximation's way off, which is fun to read, terrible to experience. Yeah. I think another um, interesting element of the book, let's say that we can sort of feel a contagion from the characters, like the character of a human being around us. So there's an idea in there that Jeff maybe caught something from Francis, that, that to, to be, it's, it's a little more literal, but there's also a very psychological element to that, that do we become the people we're surrounded by? Do they influence us so much that maybe the core of who we are morphs? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it really depends on how open we are. You know, if you're 20-something coming out of college and have no idea what to do, to do with your life, yeah, you, you could definitely become um, very like the people that you're looking up to. That's why we have uh, role models, right? Um, and then there are other people who are sort of allergic to role models. They're like, no, F you, I'm not going to be like anybody. And then, then you find out that, well, no, no man is an island, no person is an island. Do you have any thoughts about like who owns stories? Because there's some questions in here about storytelling itself. Can you elaborate on that question? Yeah, like when you hear a story from someone else uh, and then you metabolize it, do you own it? Can they be owned? Yeah, I think they can't be owned. Yeah. I mean, I think a clever concept can kind of be owned if somebody came up with something clever and then you decided to make a blockbuster film out of it. Um, but in terms of, yeah, I don't know, that stories are just things that, that happen to people and the way we interpret them. And also, there's, there are not that many uh, new things happening. I mean, we have new technology and all that kind of stuff, but people, are, people are, have been consistently people for many, many years now. Um, so the stories don't... Uh, so the song remains the same, as they say. And I remember what I was going to say before about the transmission of... Francis-ness to Jeff. I was inspired by the movie The Hidden um, with Kyle MacLachlan where uh, there's this, uh, it starts off with this like an old man driving this like uh, sort of sports car that he's stolen and he's blasting like heavy metal music and driving like a maniac and he crashes and he ends up in the hospital and sort of like, what's going on with this old guy? And as he's lying in his hospital bed, next to somebody else who's in the hospital, this giant worm type thing comes out of his mouth and then goes into the mouth of the person next to him and then they become the next host for The Hidden. And Kyle MacLachlan's just a cop trying to sort it out, but it turns out he's actually an alien and it's like an intergalactic thing. It's kind of a corny movie, but I love that mouth-to-mouth transmission of the dark thing from one to another, and it did inspire... <laughs> Uh, maybe it inspired it after the fact. Now, maybe I'm just justifying it after the fact. Damn it, the left brain interpreter strikes again. But you, you heard it here first. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about the book before we get into the final questions? Because I want to leave time if you have questions. The scene where Jeff meets Agnes Martin, the artist Agnes Martin, and she shakes his hand, and he feels that she sees something special in him because she holds his hand for this extended period of time. And he's like, either she's having a stroke or she sees something special in me. I don't, I don't know what. That really happened to me. And I still don't know whether or not Agnes Martin saw something special in me. Or maybe just thought, oh, he's a nice young man. Yeah. No idea. But there's the, 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 the border between life. It, this book borrows from my life more than anything else I've written. Like I could annotate. And it's all jumbled, but like I can pick out little thing by thing. Um, I used to work for an art appraiser and worked in Beverly Hills in the art world in the 90s. So very little research required and a lot of fun remembering. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. So can you read a passage from an author that influences you as a writer? Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to come up with one of these things because I don't tend to remember books in words that much. 
Poetry, yeah, but books, novels, I mean, I tend to remember as the vibe, right? As the kids say, the feelings, the things that they evoked, images. So, um, all of a when I, I saw you were going to ask me this question, I, I kind of drew a blank because I thought, well, what's a great passage? So, this is chosen a little bit for a different reason, and I'll, I'll read it first and I'll tell you why. It's from um, the New York Trilogy by Paul Oster. It was a wrong number that started it. The telephone ringing three times in the dead of night, and the voice on the other end asking for someone he was not. Much later, when he was able to think about the things that happened to him, he would conclude that nothing was real except chance. But that was much later. In the beginning, there was simply the event and its consequences. Whether it might have turned out differently, or whether it was all predetermined with the first word that came from the stranger's mouth is not the question. The question is the story itself. And whether or not it means something is not for the story to tell. Okay, some of the mysterious double talk from Paul Oster. Um, I, I read that because when I decided to pursue writing novels, I was a, a pre-med undergrad at UCLA, um, and I had always been a writer and always wanted to be a writer, but it was reading Paul Oster's New York trilogy that made me realize oh, no, 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 no. This is what I need to be doing with my life. And I'm not sure exactly why it was this book. Um, it was followed by Another Country by James Baldwin and V by Thomas Pynchon. But those were the books that made me sort of st stop everything, kick pre-med aside, and say, no, no, I'm going to be a novelist. So I figured that would be worth reading. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you like. Again, I misunderstood the assignment. No, I'm just kidding. I, I'm going to read from the first page of, the, of, of Mouth to Mouth, and, and there's a reason. Um, I'll just read about half a page of it, if I can see it. I sat at the gate at JFK, having red-eyed my way from Los Angeles, exhausted, minding my own business, reflecting on what I'd seen the night before, shortly after takeoff, shortly before sleep, something I'd never seen before from an airplane, I'd been on the left side of the plane, and we'd gone south over the ocean, accident of fate, affording me a panoramic view of the city at night, amber streetlights dotting neighborhoods, red-stripe, white-stripe garlands of freeway traffic, mysterious black gaps of waterways and parkland. Then a small burst of light, not at ground level, but above it. Another burst of light, streaks opening like a flower in time-lapse. A fireworks show. I watched the little explosions until we penetrated the cloud layer. It wasn't a holiday. I was thinking about how a sight that might consume our attention completely on the ground could, from another perspective, barely register as a blip on an enormous field when I heard a name over the PA. Jeff Cook, the agent said, please check in at the counter for gate 11. A common enough name, but it piqued my attention. I had known a Jeff Cook once at UCLA, almost 20 years earlier. So that's the beginning of the book. This is something I found in my files after the book was published on my computer. I was digging around archives looking at things, and this comes from, uh, it's just a little sketch for a story. It was called Airport Story Doc, and I was like, what is this? So it's just a sketch, but there was only one person at the counter. I heard, you paged? I was that close, but it wasn't him. I was about to go back to my flight. Then I looked again, some gesture, some way of standing. It was him, totally different looking. I finally went up to him. It was him, definitely, well, notes, right? I don't know you, he said. You are? Yes. I reminded him. Nope, he said. Sorry, you've got the wrong guy. But I saw a twitch of his face. I did. I wondered if I hadn't convinced myself into believing it was him. What kind of story is this? What about the fireworks from above? What are those about? Dated July 23rd, 2002. So that's 20 years before this book had come out. I'd written this sketch and forgotten about it completely. And these two things, a guy's name being called over the intercom and the fireworks from above, for some reason, are mysteriously linked, right? Um, and it was a shock to find that document, but also kind of reassuring to know that these things will keep circling around and around and around and eventually find their way out. Oh, we have a lot of pockets in our brain. Yeah, labyrinths. Where do you write? Wherever. I, I write all over the place. Ideally, 
uh, at the beginning of a project in a notebook um, in a room without a view and then in a laptop in a room without a view. But uh, I have two kids at two different schools, so I, I, I write wherever I can and whenever I can. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Surfing. I surf. I can't write when I surf. Um, obviously, but I also, people have said, oh, do you find it inspiring? And I said, no, it's the opposite. It's like, it's like you're immersed in a whole different medium. The whole city, everything, the United States are behind you, right? At least in LA. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's like a hard yoga class in the sense that you are a hundred percent there. So I don't think about story or anything when I'm out there. And, um, who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, I read it aloud to my wife as I'm writing it, um, just to hear it aloud for the most part. And every once in a while, she'll tell me, you know, no, 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 no. What are you doing? Usually it's just keep going. And then I have beyond that, once I've really, really worked on it, I've got a, a novelist friend. How have you dealt with rejection? Poorly. <laughs> uh, take it to heart. Um, stop sending things out, worried that I'm not a good writer, that kind of stuff. The opposite of what they tell you to do. Like, you know, the people who are like, I sent it out 50 times and then, you know, eventually it found a place and I'm like, well, maybe it wasn't that good. And uh, I don't know. No, I mean, I know it's, it's such a subjective thing, but um, on, on this end of things, I'm not great with rejection. Not as good as I'd like to be. And what is your favorite word? Uh, tatterdemalion is a favorite word that I'll never get to use. It means uh, ragamuffin, and I kind of feel like in the battle between tatterdemalion and ragamuffin, maybe tatterdemalion should have won out, and ragamuffin should be the obscure word. Thank you so much for sharing this conversation with me and us here. Thank you so much, Mitzi. This has been a, a blast. This interview was recorded live at the Printers Row Lit Fest in Chicago in September 2023. If you liked today's show with Antoine Wilson, author of the novel Mouth to Mouth, check out my interview with Tom Rackman, author of the novel The Italian Teacher. We talked about the culture of art and artists, how much we are willing to tolerate for art, and the marketing of art. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 430 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jill McCorkle, Diane Seuss, and Vanessa Chan. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.